You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it, and I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. We will be speaking with Gina DeLuca. Gina is a registered dietitian. She's currently an outpatient oncology dietitian for the Center for Cancer Care at NYU Winthrop Hospital. There she provides individual nutrition counseling as well as group nutrition education presentations to patients during all phases of oncology care, including prevention, treatment, and survivorship. As a member of the Oncology Support Services team, she serves on the NYU Winthrop Cancer Committee, is a member of cancer diagnosis-specific work groups, and participates in institution-wide cancer awareness events. Gina received her Bachelor of Science in Nutrition and Dietetics from New York University. She completed her dietetic internship at Massachusetts General Hospital. As a member of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and the Oncology Nutrition Dietetic Practice Group, Gina is currently pursuing specialized certification in oncology nutrition. Thanks so much for chatting with us today, Gina. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is such a wonderful opportunity and I'm very grateful to be here with you today. Gina, you and I met while we were attending one of LLS's blood cancer conferences. And for those listening, LLS blood cancer conferences are free education events where blood cancer patients, survivors, caregivers, family members, and healthcare professionals come together and learn more about treatment options, emerging therapies, management of survivorship issues, and LLS resources. So to see where the next BCC may take place in your own area, you can visit www.lls.org forward slash BCC. Now, Gina, at the conference, you presented alongside hematologist and medical oncologist, Dr. Mark Bronstein. And when you were both finished speaking, so many people came up to you and asked you about myeloma overall and about their personal nutrition inquiries. And both of you were just so patient and willing to take each and every question. And it was clear to me and to those around me that you were passionate about your field and about nutrition for cancer patients, specifically blood cancer patients. What brought you to the field of nutrition and dietetics? Oh, thank you so much, Alicia, for recognizing that on that day and also for asking me you know, to speak, for giving me this opportunity today to be able to get the message out to so many people. It's funny thinking back about this, looking over the questions and thinking that I've always had a love of science and a love of art. And I feel like nutrition is just the perfect junction for the two. From the time I was young, my family always had a garden. Grandparents had gardens. We were always, you know, kind of picking vegetables and making meals with them and just really like simple things, you know, what what the simple things could do and how important food is and then creating art of it. So to me, you know, 
taking that food and making a meal out of it is art. So it's just this, this perfect, you know, uh, combination of the two of them. So I think it was just the natural course of things. When I got into middle school, we actually had a home economics class, and we had to talk about what we wanted to be when we grew up. And at that point, I said nutritionist, dietitian. I knew at that age. And then going into school, I actually went in as an education major, and then I was given the opportunity to take nutrition for my science requirement. And I loved it. So, so much so that I actually changed my major over into nutrition and haven't looked back since. It's been fantastic, especially now being in the oncology side of things and seeing how much we can really do to help people. I know I'm where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> so thank you for that confirmation. <laughs> and that is a wonderful feeling knowing exactly where you're supposed to be. Now, Gina, just switching gears over to nutrients and what our body needs. Um, it can be a challenge when you have cancer, such as multiple myeloma, which is a type of cancer that forms in the plasma cells within your bone marrow. But keeping up with good nutrition is important. So on this episode, we'll be chatting about nutrition for a myeloma patient. Gina, how important is nutrition for a myeloma patient? Very important. It, it plays an integral role in really supporting the patient on a variety of levels, primarily physically, because what we eat literally becomes our body cells and through the breakdown of those nutrients feeds our body cells. But I can't help but include the mental, emotional, and spiritual levels too. Food just plays such an important role in nourishing our bodies in so many ways. And I think that it's very important, especially when a patient does have cancer, to focus on the fact that food is empowerment. So in this setting of not having control over various things, this is one thing that people can really kind of take ownership and say, this is what I can try to do for myself today and to the best of their ability. And that's where support becomes so important to um, whether it's family or it's a community or even, you know, healthcare providers, everyone just really rallying together as a team for the patient. But it is so important in the nutrients, especially the uh, calories for energy, the protein for strength, all the vitamins and minerals that play all those little roles in all the functions that they perform is very important. So what should a myeloma patient eat or what should they avoid? Yeah, so they, these are, you know, great focuses because I think that's probably what patients come to me and ask mostly is, you know, what should I eat and what should I avoid? And so what we find across the board for all cancer diagnoses is that it's individualized. But specifically when it comes to myeloma, because patients may need to hone in on certain foods or omit certain foods for different reasons, depending on where their disease process is. So, you know, we find that sometimes patients may have anemia, so where they're lacking certain nutrients, foods that are especially high in iron are important. And again, everything sort of has to be taken into account for what that person's preferences are and how we can best incorporate those foods into their diet. But foods that have heme iron, which is basically from animal products, and so it's very readily absorbable by itself, you know, may include clams and red meat, as well as sardines. And then non-heme iron are plant-based sources of iron. So they may need some combination with grain sources like rice, potatoes, and things, but beans, um, chickpeas, lentils, nuts, and spinach and other leafy greens can be great sources of, of iron. And then we, we also like to recommend that they include a vitamin C-rich food source. So something, for instance, like bell peppers, oranges, berries, citrus, 
And again, everything is individualized to that patient. So if somebody can't have one food, maybe we can find another food that has that nutrient. So it's a lot of working together to combine things. And then folate plays a big part in forming blood cells. So foods that are high in folate include asparagus, black-eyed peas, lentils, broccoli, cooked beans, and spinach as well. And then there's always vitamin B12 that also comes in that works together with folate to form red blood cells. So beef, again, clams, fish and poultry, eggs and dairy products, fortified cereals, and fortified non-dairy milk, such as soy milk, flax milk, or almond milk, can also be very helpful sources of vitamin B12. Gina, what are your thoughts on vitamin supplementations? So vitamin supplementation can get very tricky and can sometimes have adverse effects. So where, let's say, for instance, someone's deficient, then they most likely will need a vitamin supplement because food may just not be enough. So that's where it's very important to work closely with your oncologist for them to check blood levels to see where things are at and if it's in relation to, let's say, a given treatment versus the disease process itself. And then decisions can be made on supplementation in amounts that are appropriate. I think where we get into trouble with supplements are where people start self-supplementing and buying things over the counter because of things that they're reading or seeing on the internet. Um, it's always the you know care and concern of someone else who's been through it that gives them information about what they should do, but that might not be what they should do. So we really have to encourage our patients to come to us and bring all their information to us and let us be the ones to filter it for them. So so I think, you know, of course, there are certain specific cases where they might be appropriate, but not necessarily flat across the board. The internet can certainly be your worst friend or your best friend. Gina, are you finding that a lot of patients are coming to see you with things that are already printed out after they've done their own research? Or are you seeing that they're coming to you more at a baseline and asking you to help them build from there? I think probably at baseline more so. And then, you know, of course, there are some select patients that will come with information that they've either read or printed. Um, and then we sort of take that case by case to see. But I think a lot of our patients are coming at baseline, you know, sort of wondering where their starting point is. And that's why we have a practice to see all of our new patients in the infusion center, as well as patients that are um, referred to us by the doctors and nurses to make sure that we're capturing everybody that needs nutrition service at whatever given point. Vitamin D can also be very helpful too. I just wanted to mention, although it's, it's very challenging sometimes to get enough vitamin D, so oftentimes vitamin D does need to be supplemented more than anything else. But some sources do include egg yolks, fatty fish, fortified dairy products, and non-dairy milks as well. So at least it, it offers a little bit of help, but that I find tends to be the supplement that most often needs to be, or rather nutrient that needs to be given in supplemental form. Sure, and everybody's so different. I know that a lot of people prior to their cancer diagnosis may be on certain types of diets or certain type of lifestyle where they may not eat meat or dairy. Is that something that you just work through, work with a patient as to see what other things that they can eat during treatment? Absolutely. And, you know, a plant-based diet has really shown a lot of benefit across the board for many different conditions, cancer as well as diabetes, cardiovascular disease. So it's such a helpful diet on so many levels that if we can utilize a lot of the nutrients involved and the principles involved, that's helpful. Sometimes, too, we 
find that so many of those nutrients, so many of those foods have phytochemicals, plant-based compounds that are only found in fruits, vegetables, and grains, and beans, and different plant-based products that really have a strong anti-cancer effect. But what's wonderful about the foods versus, let's say, a concentrated supplement is that it's in a form that the body can truly absorb and will utilize and not have an excess where then there can be um, too much of a good thing. Sure. It can actually potentially interfere with the treatment that the patient's being given and inhibit the treatment from working as well as it possibly could. So we work with that too, depending on patients that are on certain types of active treatment, like for instance, Velcade or Bortezomib is the other name for it. That can have interaction with green tea. Green tea can actually render um, the drug ineffective in that way. So we want to make sure that people don't utilize it so that they're able to get the best benefit from the drug working as well as it can. And do you usually tell people or do physicians tell people up front? Because I know that I drink green tea every day and it might not be in the forefront of my mind to tell my doctor that I'm drinking green tea. It's just part of my day. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that definitely can happen for people. It just becomes so part, so much a part of someone's routine um, that, you know, we can almost take it for granted. So we actually do at the onset. Uh, in fact, it's funny. I had a new patient today who was on it in our infusion center who I educated and she was great. She's like, oh, Dr. Bronstein already did, did mention this in our oh. consult. So it was, it was great. You know, so we're always like looking to kind of close the loop and make sure that the patient at the different points that they come to us are getting, you know, the same information and reinforcement of the information because the cancer diagnosis is just hugely overwhelming for someone to be able to take all of that in on top of, you know, the fact that they now have a major life change in front of them. So so we just really try to normalize things as much as we can and, and give them the support that they need. It's interesting, too. So some recent studies have shown specifically to have compounds that can be helpful exhibiting antimyeloma properties. In fact, our cruciferous vegetable family, so things like our broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, cabbages, um, you know, and again, in inappropriate amounts, we don't need to go have overkill, but just enough and consistently throughout the diet that can be very helpful. Are there some foods that interfere with medications? Yeah. So, so actually, it's funny because there was a patient I was working with last week who was consuming black licorice pretty consistently. So we actually had to have her stop doing that because that can interfere with various medications and actually cause different side effects, potentially elevated blood pressure, swelling, irregular heartbeats. It actually, if I'm understanding it correctly, actually works to deplete the potassium in the body. So there can be adverse wow. effects that occur. So that's one. Um, grapefruit is another. Grapefruit is is this amazingly unique um, yeah. entity. It just interferes and interacts with so many different things than, than the mechanisms of action, as far as I very roughly understand, are so varied that it really can um, cause an issue. So, yeah, those are definitely two on sort of the hit list that I, I wow. usually make sure to look out for. And, and there are just so many others now being identified, too, because we're really coming to learn more about these phytochemicals and how they work. You know, for a long time, it was really just our vitamins and minerals, which which are still, of course, very important, but these phytochemicals, you know, are just a whole other world. But again, a lot of it depends on the amounts and how they're being consumed. In, in food, they're much more easily absorbed. It's just a more natural form that the body recognizes, so it's more benign. 
But I think we do have to be careful too. Like a lot of times with myeloma, there can be kidney involvement. So we want to make sure that patients aren't consuming too much of protein, potassium, phosphorus, sodium, all depending on where their disease process is and where their, maybe their blood levels of certain laboratory values are. Sure. I know I've heard of grapefruit. I don't know if I've ever heard of black licorice or how that conversation would come about, actually. Do you ask people to write down what they're eating just to make sure or... Yeah, so we actually do a food recall when they come to meet with us or, you know, would rather we go to meet with them and especially initially an infusion because we're meeting them at chair-side. Yeah, I always can't pronounce the active ingredient in red wine. What is it? Resveratrol. That took yeah. me a long time too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's supposed to be very good for people. I don't know. I don't drink wine, but... Okay. <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing is for anyone that doesn't consume alcohol, you can actually get a considerable amount from red grapes. That's oh. the only food I know offhand, but but interestingly enough, so that's something that similar to the green tea can potentially interfere with some of the myeloma drugs, but I think you have to have really high concentrations of it. We're always weighing risks and benefits because right. I think that there's a risk to everything depending on how much we're consuming. There's a health benefit there that if someone has a handful of red grapes, I don't think they have to start over it. It's if, if they're having very large amounts every single day, repeatedly, that's where the, more of the concern comes in. And that sort of ties us in nicely to the topic of toxic exposures in a way where, you know, toxic exposures of certain um, herbicides, pesticides, and different ingredients that are used on crops. For instance, glyphosate is one of these that has been linked to a potentially increased risk for myeloma. So I think that those, you know, pose the concern too in terms of certain foods because a lot of patients will ask us, do we have to eat everything organic? And right. the truth is you don't. You know, there's a, there's a great governmental agency, the Environmental Working Group, and they work really hard to make sure that that list, the clean 15 and the dirty dozen, mm -hmm. are updated regularly so that those are the, let's say, dirty dozen, the top 12 fruits and vegetables that if you consume them pretty often, you'd probably want to buy organic. But if you're consuming more on that clean 15 side, you can buy conventional and not be concerned because it does become a cost factor. So... Because that's a good thing. I'll often say to people, if they say, you know, should I eat this food organic? Well, how often are you having it? How much are you having it? All these things factor in. We always want to make sure that people get the baseline nutrition from a food rather than to miss that opportunity. Having conventional once in a while is not going to be harmful. It's more the repeated exposure of certain foods and certain crops and what they're exposed to. With fruits and vegetables in particular, are you supposed to clean them? in a certain way, just because they tend to have more bacteria on them. I know that before people used to talk about a neutropenic diet, now not, not so much. Yes, all right on. And great segue into another very important topic. So thank you. Because yes, the, that's very important for everybody to well, you know, make sure everything's well washed, well cleaned. What I'll often recommend to people is just really rinsing and cleaning well, adding maybe a couple of drops of fresh lemon juice or white vinegar. These are antimicrobial in their nature, so they're able to help remove bacteria well. Sometimes people are coming in using all kinds of fruits and vegetable washes and soaps and things, and that can actually, you know, get into another issue of you know, we shouldn't be ingesting certain types of chemicals like that. So rather just using something natural can be really effective because that too, the research has shown us that 
we want to make sure people are getting the nutrients that are in those foods. So as long as they're not severely neutropenic, where their white blood cell count is extremely low, if they have a fairly adequate count, they're able to consume these things without an issue, and they're getting more benefit from the food itself. So just that really good, you know, strong food safety practice, well washing, well cleaning, using things fairly quickly, not letting things sit in the refrigerator for too long, making sure everything is up to speed is is good. Sure. And I know that I've often asked and patients often asked about meats that are in the deli counter, the ones that are fresh versus the ones that are sealed. If it's better to have sealed meats just because of bacteria. So I think it all comes down to how it was packaged when it was packaged. You know, we always have that concern. Was it cleanly packaged? I think the most important thing is, especially if someone's on, let's say, transplant guidelines, that they should be heating that meat to a certain temperature. The CDC has a great website, foodsafety.gov, is fantastic for giving those guidelines of what those temperatures should be. But heating things to that point of like steaming or, you know, making sure that things are cooked off is important, even if it's singly packaged, because we just don't know what the concern is. But, you know, some general tips, again, if someone has a fairly adequate white blood cell count, if they're making sure that the meats and the cheeses are cut on separate slicers, that's helpful. I always say, too, wherever you're going to get a good turnover, if you go to a supermarket (laughs) where there's really high turnover, things are moving faster. It's the places where it's sitting. We don't know how often they're changing things. And you can kind of get a sense when you see things, but I think if people are concerned, they should just heat it to steaming just to make sure that everything's cooked off. Okay. And you also mentioned cheese, and I know that a lot of people ask about dairy products. So I think that dairy is best bought organic if possible, only because then we know that it's a cleaner type of dairy as opposed to having hormones, antibiotics, and all of these things sort of added in the process. You know, always just, I think, looking holistically or humanely at how the animals are raised, how they're treated, how things are farmed, how things are sourced, I think is really important. I think there's become a really strong sort of flashback against dairy, and I don't think it's dairy itself because dairy is really a good source of protein, calcium, other nutrients that are helpful, vitamin D, vitamin A, potassium can be helpful, but I think it's all about looking at, is it clean dairy in that sense, or is it a potential carrier of hormones and antibiotics and other preservatives, things that could cause the problem. But I think it's also about being moderate. I think if people are leaning toward more plant-based foods because they feel better from it, I think that's something definitely worth exploring. Sure. We have personalized nutrition consults here. And our registered dietitian does say that a lot of patients, once they're diagnosed, really talk about extreme diets with her. They tend to, once they're diagnosed, be very cognizant about everything that they're putting into their mouth. And if it's not them, it's their loved one that's caregiving for them. And to a point where a lot of people do lose a lot of weight, not just from the actual medications, but because they're not eating as much. Do you find that? I definitely see that. And and it always sort of breaks my heart because I think that the most important thing we can do is really support the patient where the patient is at. I think that a lot of the information that's on the internet really has to be clarified, like I had said initially, filtered back through the person's healthcare team. Because 
those are general guidelines. When we really get down to individualizing care, it could be the complete inverse of what they see out there that that person ends up needing. So I always feel like it takes a village and we really have to put the patient at the center and see what is it that they need and really explore their preferences and are there ways to get certain nutrients. I always think that any diet that or any meal plan or anything that cuts out a whole group of nutrients and food is not sound <laughs> unless there's an, a clinical indication to do so, where in certain cases there there may be. The ketogenic diet, as we all hear about every single day, yeah. has really <laughs> taken flight. And it's frightening. You know, in cases of seizure and certain neuro-oncology conditions, it can be extremely effective in optimizing quality of life and potentially prolonging life. But in other cases across the board, it has not shown to do that. And because it cuts out major foods that we need for energy, it can be very concerning. So that's one thing that um, concerns me. And we recently embarked on getting some education here to be able to really service our patients that need that, but to be able to distinguish for our patients that don't, that it's not something that we may be at the point of using yet in society. We may need to take a step back and really get back to just balance and giving the patients balanced nutrition. So I think it's all, it's important too to support the caregivers and see that because again, it's, it's an area where people look to empower, you know, whether it's the patient themselves, how can they support the patient maybe in another way that's actually more supportive than to add more stress around mealtime and eating? Because a lot of times we do see weight loss that is not helpful. It's it's actually harmful because then they're losing muscle tissue, which can compromise their immune system. So I think we, you know, can help them take a step back and just see that there are ways to get to the same goal that might be better for everybody involved. Sure. And to really honor the patient's tastes because their tastes can change so profoundly as they go through treatment. So to really sort of honor where they're at and, and almost make a journey out of it of, you know, I, I encourage people sometimes to keep a food journal for what's changing and why and what they're recognizing because a lot of things that they initially loved, they can't stand now, but they have a whole new host of preferences. So just to try to put a positive spin on what's already a challenge. Sure. And I love that you're mentioning also the caregiver because we find that the caregiver as well as the patient, when they're given the cancer diagnosis, they really feel out of control. So it's very empowering, we find, when patients and caregivers are saying to us, well, this is something that we can do. This is something that we can actually participate in. Whereas, you know, treatment is treatment, cancer is cancer. It's really different when you could do something. I feel very blessed to do what I do because I almost look at the nutrition piece as like an artist palette. So you really have this blank canvas to help this person in the way that they need the help the most and the way that they're going to best respond nutritionally to what they're able to do and to sort of give the basic foundation of a general helpful diet and what that means. Whereas sort of the nuances that we weave in for that particular person. It may end up being what works for one person is not going to work for someone else, and it's just a way to individualize their care to help them come through this experience. And first and foremost, I'll always tell people, you never want to stress about what you eat because the spike in your stress hormones, your cortisol, that's going to 
cause inflammation or help you know promote inflammation and that's the exact opposite of what we want to be doing it, it's you know literally has been shown to do that and so we do we want to remove the stress from it this is the piece that is just like the like the garden or like the ground to just sort of work through and it's like their you know their sandbox they can play they can do whatever they want with it as long as they're getting those basic nutrients that their body really does need to sustain through treatment there's a lot of room to play with so it helps and um and to just really try to help encourage balance because I think as as much as sometimes we have people you know that are struggling to maintain weight we do have people that are struggling with obesity and obesity is such a risk factor for cancer in fact for myeloma as well as for recurrence of cancers and so we really work to just try to help our patients find the middle of the road so that they can just be optimized not only for overcoming this diagnosis but for preventing further diagnosis in the future sure and you did say that sometimes it does affect the treatment, how you taste foods. So does the taste of food actually change? Yeah, so so it's wild. It's sometimes a complete lack of taste occurs or a different taste or a poor taste, like a bad taste, where people will almost say that the food tastes bad. It tastes as if it were spoiled. And so they have a family member taste it to see if it really is spoiled. And while it's not, then we work with them to try to find what it is that can help overcome that. So a lot of times potent substances like citrus, as long as they have no mouth sores or mouth irritations, citrus can be very effective for helping with metal taste, bitter taste. Sometimes we need a little bit of sweetness to overcome bitter or salt or sour. So we're constantly like, you know, just working with them to say, what is it that you're experiencing and how can we try different things to help you overcome that? Sometimes really helpful is just making a baking soda rinse with um, certain proportions of water, baking soda, and salt, and then rinsing with that um, throughout the day, periodically throughout the day can really help people. It's almost like a neutralizer, good neutralizer. Sure. I know that I've heard of a lot of patients that they've said that they needed spicy food, something that's a little bit more spicy than they typically would have had. Yes, yes, definitely spice has come up for me too. A lot of people find like capsaicin, like that cayenne pepper is helpful, mm -hmm. as well as like turmeric and ginger and then vinegars and really, you know, pickled or pungent kind of tastes do stand out. So yeah, and those are great ways to really give flavor without adding a lot of salt, because if they do have any issue with their, their fluid status, their blood pressure, and we're having to watch sodium, then that eliminates that issue. We can kind of work more with the flavors of fresh herbs and spices too. And I know that in one of the podcasts, a young adult, she had Hodgkin lymphoma, and she said that because of that metallic taste that you, you'd mentioned, that even using plastic forks and spoons, utensils, made it a little bit easier to tolerate the food. Yes, yes, that's a, a key piece of information. Thank you for mentioning that because a lot of our patients will try that and they say it saves them that they end up just using plasticware throughout or if they're concerned about contributing to excess plastic waste, then they just get a set of, let's say, a plastic, you know, fork spoon and knife and they'll just wash it well afterwards but that they have sure. something that's yeah that's not um metal constantly coming in because that that metal on metal can just be unbearable and um, sometimes even patients find that sipping through a straw helps because it just localizes that fluid to one spot so they don't have this big influx of fluid coming into the whole mouth and overpowering it there's so many strategies i i really look at it as like these little you know tips and tools in a toolbox that we can use to really help people overcome going through this
There tends to be more and more research that is coming out or more articles coming out regarding the connection between myeloma and obesity. Now within your line of work, Gina, are you seeing that there is a lot of research out there that shows a connection between the two? Yeah, so I think that very important to pay attention to is the connection with inflammation that occurs with obesity, as well as the presence of other known inflammatory conditions can increase risk for myeloma, so in particular diabetes, cardiovascular disease. So what we find, unfortunately, is that there's a lot of intersection between all of these conditions. And now, you know, unfortunately, cancer is becoming more of a chronic condition where inflammation really seems to be at the heart of these issues. The American Cancer Society had studied the connection with obesity, and a lot of it seems to be linked to the westernized diet and lifestyle that have come along with modernization. With the westernized diet, we're looking at less plant-based products, less of protection from these phytochemicals and fibers that have shown to be helpful, less good nutrition to give a strong microbiome or the gut bacteria, the good bacteria in our bodies. And unfortunately, with a lot of refined sugar, increasing insulin, which that, you know, spike in insulin and then insulin resistance, it all leads back to inflammation. But I think it's all those things together. I know that Gina mentioned foodsafety.gov. What are some of the nutritional resources that you provide to your patients? I love you guys as a resource, to be honest. I think that that's a, a wonderful resource to start with, you know, especially in terms of I remember there being a great food safety tip sheet for people that was really helpful that we had given out at one point. I do love our Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, our national organization for registered dietitians. We have an oncology nutrition dietetic practice group, and that really is my go main go-to for information. So there's a lot of resources there on the website. I believe it's oncologynutrition.org. The American Institute for Cancer Research is really good too. They're really big on plant-based information, as well as the National Cancer Institute is phenomenal for their PDF and their booklet on eating tips during treatment. So I think it's eating hints for patients during treatment. And then definitely the Environmental Working Group, too, for all that information about organics and different uh, toxic, potential toxic exposures to avoid. Gina, thank you so much for that information. I know that our listeners will be very grateful for those resources. Those are very helpful. Another topic that comes up that we didn't address in detail was malnutrition for cancer patients. Would you be able to speak more about that? Sure. It sort of goes one of two ways. Either this malnutrition through starvation comes when cancer's really, you know, working on the body catabolically, muscle tissue is breaking down, someone's of a very low weight status. That's, let's say, our classic presentation of malnutrition. So that's absolutely concerning and needs to be addressed immediately once someone is diagnosed with cancer and is being worked up for a treatment plan. But I think that the other end of the spectrum, as I've been, you know, taught throughout my studies and my um, positions in my field, is to look at the obesity piece as well, because there's malnutrition there that often gets overlooked, unfortunately. And a lot of that ties back to people being on that westernized diet, not getting the nutrients that their body really needs on a, what we call micronutrients. So our vitamins, our minerals, also then the phytochemicals, the fibers, all of these things that really help to 
optimize the body against cancer. So there's malnutrition therein as well. Also, a lot of times lacking the omega-3 essential fatty acids because these are literally essential. Our bodies can't make them. We need to take them in through our diet, and they work to modulate inflammation. They really work to downregulate inflammation in the body. And that's why we do the food recall that we do to really get a sense of what people are eating and how those foods can optimize them. Or if they're not getting foods to optimize them, how do we integrate those foods in so that we get the most balanced plan possible for someone? And Gina, is there anything that you think that we didn't cover or something that you think that we should delve deeper into? I think that I just want to mention the plate method. I love the plate method in terms of um, that nine-inch plate and half of your plate being vegetables and or salad, um, a quarter lean protein, a quarter a whole grain or a whole food starch, and then a serving of fruit and a serving of dairy or a dairy alternative on the side really helps to give you that complete balance that you need at a meal. So I would definitely touch on that. And I think that that probably is it. I think really when it comes down to any treatment-related symptoms, we take that patient by patient to really see whether it's taste changes, nausea, diarrhea, anything else going on that we make sure that we optimize them. Even fatigue, you know, something like fatigue that, you know, people may think it's just part of, like, no, sometimes we can really make sure that they're nourished and hydrated and, and combat that fatigue as much as possible. In fact, I believe there's a study on ginseng that was shown. So maybe it doesn't necessarily have to be a strong supplement, maybe something like a tea. And again, all of these things we factor together to make sure that it is safe for the patient and given inappropriate doses or suggested inappropriate doses. Gina, another topic that I see a lot of information on is sugar and its relation to cancer. For those listening, would you be able to explain sugar and its connection to a cancer diagnosis? Sugar doesn't directly feed cancer. The bigger concern is that when people are eating too much sugar, it's taking the place of those nutrient-dense whole food calories. So we want to make sure everyone's getting what they really do need and not things that they don't. But I think sometimes that's where a lot of the patients and family members restrict because they think there's a direct connection. And sometimes people just need to get those baseline calories in and they need to enjoy what they're eating. So I always say, you know, 80 to 90% of the time, it's like the life factor. You know, enjoy what you're eating, you know, or do or let's say 80 to 90% of the time you do as clean, good nutrition as you can. The other part of the time you have to enjoy what you're eating. We have to factor in these exceptions. Otherwise, it's just unbalanced. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Gina, for joining us today and for the difference that you're making in the lives of so many cancer patients. You mentioned earlier that nutrition requires some sort of creativity, and I know that you are an artist for many patients and their families. So again, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I've really been honored to have this opportunity, and I hope that it's been helpful for someone. It was great. Thank you. Thank you. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society would like to inform you of PROMISE, a research study to identify, screen, and track individuals at high risk of developing multiple myeloma. The goal of this study is to increase early detection in order to develop new therapies that prevent disease progression and improve survival. To learn more about this study as well as how you can join, call 617-582-8544 or visit www.promisestudy.org.
Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.